and their four children, Teresa, Thomas, Ezra, and Mark, reside in Covington, Louisiana. So it's my distinct pleasure now to introduce our keynote lecturer, Dr. Brand Petrie. Thank you, Tom. I'm, not, I'm obviously a lot shorter than Dr. Neal. Okay. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. We, well, let's see. Which one of these, Tom? Is this for the vocal and this is for recording? Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. So I'll make sure. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here with you all tonight. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Neal, as well as Father Weiner, who wasn't able to be here, uh, for inviting me tonight to do this symposium. Although the, the seminarians informed me today that it was supposed to be a bloodbath. So I was like, they said, will it be a bloodbath? I was like, I think it's a symposium, which is not the same <laughs> thing. All right. I want to thank Dr. Ball for graciously agreeing to uh, both read the book and, and give a response tonight. Uh, he may not know it, but I can't tell you how much respect I have for him as a colleague and how delighted I am to have him here and it's a role. Uh, with great fear and trembling that I await his response, uh, I don't know what he's going to say. Uh, but if it's not good, the podcast will be immediately deleted from the website. All right. Um, so anyway, without any further ado, what I want to do tonight is... Um, is uh, try to summarize the book, The Case for Jesus. So I wrote this book while I was on sabbatical uh, last year, and uh, I wrote it rather quickly because it's something that's been in my mind and in my heart for a long time. This is the book I've wanted to write for a very long time. And it's really two books in one. Uh, there are two issues that the book is dealing with. One is the origin of the Gospels, and the other is the identity of Jesus, the, the, especially the divine identity of Jesus. And so tonight when I'm going to try to do is uh, shove the proverbial camel through the eye of a needle and summarize a lot of the main points in the book without going over time. Now, you students know that I don't ever go over time, so this this shouldn't be an issue, right, Doctor? Okay, <clears throat> Doctor, no, keep me keep me faithful here. All right. All right. So, but in order to facilitate it, I've given you a handout here to to walk along with me so that I can move rather quickly through the main points I want to make with you tonight about three key issues. First, I want to look at at the question of gospel anonymity and the origin of the gospels. Number two, I want to look at uh, the question of Jesus' divine identity in the synoptics in particular. And then number three, I'd like to, if at all possible, uh, get to the resurrection. Because it is, after all, Easter week. No? Christ is risen? Amen. Oh, we'll work on that. Okay. Uh, he's risen. I, I got it. Okay. So let's, let's um, begin. At the top of page one, I, I want to give you a little background here. This book really had its genesis in in another book that was written in 2014. Uh, this book came out, it was uh, by Bart Ehrman. He is a, a scholar, New Testament scholar, teaches at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, he is an atheist. He used to be a Christian, but he's an atheist New Testament scholar. And in 2014, he wrote this book, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. And I had been wanting to write something on the origin of the Gospels and the divinity of Christ for a while, but it was really that book that catalyzed it. Because in, in this book, Ehrman uh, lays out three basic hypotheses that are the substructure for an argument he makes, which essentially leads up to the, the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth never claimed to be divine. That that was something that his followers attributed to him only in the wake of the resurrection. Right? And so there are three elements of his argument that are problematic that I wanted to respond to in 
in my book, even though it's not actually a response book, but I'm giving you some background to put it in context. So these are the three elements. Number one, uh, there's the theory of gospel anonymity. According to Ehrman and, and lots of other scholars, to be frank, the gospels were originally anonymous. We don't know, according to this theory, who wrote them. According uh, to uh, Ehrman's argument in the book, uh, the original manuscripts of the gospels were published without any titles. And that's how they circulated, according to this theory, for a hundred years into the late second century before the titles were added to the gospels in order to give them authority. In other words, in order to create pseudonymous documents, falsely attributed documents, that would deceive their readers into thinking that they were the compositions of eyewitnesses to Jesus, either Matthew or John, or the disciples of eyewitnesses like Mark and Luke. Okay? So that's the first theory uh, he lays out. On the basis of that theory, number two, he then goes on to propound a view of the Gospels by which the stories about Jesus in the Gospels should not be viewed as eyewitness testimony Testimony. Uh, to the contrary, he compares them to the end products of an ancient game of telephone. Uh, perhaps you played the telephone game as a child. Does anybody remember the telephone game? Right. So you sit in a circle and one person begins to tell a story to the next, who tells it to the next and to the next and to the next, all the way around the circle. And then by the time you get to the end of the circle of 10 or 12 people, the story has become distorted, it's become changed, and of course everyone gets a good laugh at just how distorted it's become. Well, what Ehrman says is that the stories about Jesus and the Gospels are like an ancient game of telephone, with the difference being that instead of being performed over the course of a single afternoon at a single party with 10 or 12 people, the stories were transmitted over decades, decades after decades, across the Roman Empire in different languages with all kinds of unknown anonymous tradents, right, who had no controls over the stories, so that by the time they got to the Gospels, they were very much distorted from the actual words and deeds of Jesus. In other words, for him, the Gospels are more like folklore than biographies or history. Okay? Oral traditions passed down through an anonymous chain of transmission. That's the second uh, pillar of his book. And then third and finally, all that leads up to him arguing that the historical Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, never actually claimed to be divine. Right? He did not claim to be God. What, he, what Ehrman argues is that Jesus is only divine in the Gospel of John, right? And that is the latest of the Gospels. And if you compare John with the earlier three, I'm sure you've heard this before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a low Christology in which Jesus is merely a human uh, Messiah. Whereas John has a high Christology in which Jesus is divine. And Aaron explains that by this process of oral transmission. That by the end of the first century, John's Gospel is, in a sense, divinizing Christ. right, Writing the divine claims of Jesus back into the life of his public ministry. Putting those back into his mouth in this process of oral tradition. But in other words, the score is three Gospels with a merely human Messiah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three earlier ones, and then only one in which he's divine. Which, frankly, if, if that's the case, raises serious problems for the standard Christian narrative about who Jesus was and who he claimed to be. So what I wanted to do in this book is challenge uh, those three ideas and query whether, in fact, the historical evidence supports the claim, number one, that the Gospels are anonymous products of an in, uh, a long chain of tradition akin to the telephone game. Number two, and query the fact of whether Jesus is actually only divine in John. Is that true? Or is he divine in the synoptics as well? And then number three, I, I, just to 
top it off. What about the question of the resurrection? It's not enough to just ask who did Jesus claim to be, but does he validate his claims right, by rising from the dead? So we'll try to do all that in 40 minutes, right? <laughs> all right? Just a quick overview. We'll see how this goes. All right, page one, the origin of the Gospels. Um, were the Gospels originally anonymous? A couple of brief problems that you can mention with that theory. Uh, the first one I noticed as I began to study the question is um, that there are no anonymous manuscripts of the Gospels. They don't exist. Right? So even though the claim is that the gospel circulated anonymously for 100 years, if you actually look at the text-critical evidence, there are exactly zero copies without titles. If I give you a handout here just to give you feel the force of this. I started researching this back at Notre Dame because I was basically I accepted the theory that the gospel is originally anonymous and I also learned text critical methodology so I wanted to go back and look at the manuscripts and find the anonymous copies. And guess what? I couldn't because there aren't any. Um, so just on the, the last page, the last two pages, the little chart from the book of all of the earliest Greek manuscripts both in papyri and in the codices um, and all of the titles on those texts. And you can see there, none of them are anonymous. Now the question that arises, raises is, is very significant, which is this. If the Gospels were originally published without any titles and circulated for 100 years without any titles, then how do they all end up in the widespread manuscript tradition with the exact same titles? In other words, wouldn't you expect to see, number one, some anonymous copies, Number two, some discrepancies between various books. In other words, some communities attributing this gospel to Matthew and others attributing it to, say, Andrew or Peter or whatnot. You follow? If you want an example of this, you can look at the last page with the manuscript evidence for the epistle to the Hebrews. See, the epistle to the Hebrews is actually anonymous. There's no name attached to it. And guess what happens in the tradition of the manuscripts? You end up with anonymous copies, and you also end up with debates amongst the various titles about who the book was written by. So some manuscripts of Hebrews are just anonymous. Others attribute it to Timothy. Others attribute it to Paul through those people in Jerusalem. Others say it was written anonymously by Timothy. And then others will say uh, Luke or Barnabas or other uh, figures in the early church um, wrote the book. Why? Well, because the book is actually anonymous. When we look at the Gospels, however, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's no such manuscript evidence. It's completely unanimous. In other words, the internal evidence of the text itself is unanimous about attributing these books to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the way, that's how you begin to answer the question of authorship. Right? If you're going to ask who wrote any book, you have two basic ways of answering the question. Internal evidence from the book itself, right? like, like this book. Who wrote this book? Right? You look inside and you see this name, Brant Petrie. Okay? That's internal evidence that I wrote the book. But because books can be forged, you also want to look at external evidence as well. And we're going to get to that external evidence in just a second. For now, just remember, the internal manuscript evidence, according to text criticism, which... Ehrman is a text critic, by the way, so he knows this, is unanimous. Now, there are other problems with the theory as well. Uh, think about it, uh, point, this is point three on the handout there, uh, under two. If you were going to actually falsely attribute a gospel to an early figure in the church in order to give it authority, why would you pick Mark and Luke? 
Think about that. When I was younger, I used to assume all four Gospels were attributed to apostles. But that's not the case. Neither Mark nor Luke was an eyewitness to Jesus, as far as we know. Neither Mark nor Luke was one of the members of the Twelve. Right? So if you were going to actually fake or forge an attribution in order to give the document authority, then why not attribute it to Peter? Or Andrew, or for that matter, if you have full leeway, just say that your book was written by Jesus. Like, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. Go straight to the top. It doesn't make any sense to attribute your book to a second generation Christian like Mark or Luke if the title is false. Okay? Alright, so there are, there are real problems here with this theory. Uh, last but not least, just think about it for a second at the level of logic. Is it really plausible to suggest that not one, not two, but, and not three, but four different books were all ascribed to the exact same people a hundred years after they had been circulating with no titles, and they'd already spread throughout the Roman Empire? How do you get people in Alexandria and Carthage and Italy and Asia Minor to all attribute them to the same people? Why no discrepancies? The more plausible explanation is this. The reason all of the manuscripts are unanimous on the titles is that the titles go back to the originals, right? Or at least the first copy of the originals, right? Because as soon as you have more than one gospel to, 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 to differentiate with, you're going to have to say, who, did this, who wrote this book versus who wrote another book? Okay, so those are just some basic problems with the anonymity theory. And if you look here, now point number three, I've given you just a little more detail about the titles. The internal evidence, again, uh, attributes the first gospel to Matthew, the tax collector, one of the twelve apostles. The second gospel to Marcus, known as Mark, the companion of Paul and the scribe of Peter. The third gospel is unanimously attributed to Lucas, also known as Luke, the Gentile physician and companion of Paul. And then, of course, my favorite, Ioannes, we're doing John right now, the beloved disciple and the fish one of the twelve. So the internal evidence is unanimous. Okay, on a side, before we get to the externals, one argument Ehrman makes that I think is at first seems forceful is he says, well, even if the followers of Jesus wanted to have written a gospel, it would have been impossible for them to do so because they were a bunch of illiterate fishermen. And he'll cite Acts chapter 4, in which Peter and John go before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin actually say, how do these men speak so boldly when they are agramatos, when they are unlettered, when they are literally illiterate? Okay? And so Ehrman, you know, dramatic flair, says, you know, it would have been impossible, even if they wanted to. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, but... Yes, four of the apostles were fishermen, but not all of the apostles are fishermen. That's the kind of childish mistake that lots of people make. All of Jesus' disciples are fishermen. No, one of them, in all of the Gospels, Matthew and all the synoptics, is identified as a tax collector, right? And that just happens to be the guy to whom the first gospel is attributed, namely Matthew, the tax collector, who would have had to be scribally literate in order to compose documents, probably in Hebrew as well as Greek. So I, I like to joke with the students sometimes, imagine you're with Jesus for three years sitting around and you know, this guy's really good. He, he knows how to lecture. Maybe somebody should take notes. Let's see, who might we pick? Tech, uh, fisherman, 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 tax collector, right? I mean, it's 
reasonable. Uh, <laughs> although you might not want to trust him with your money, but that's a whole different issue. Okay, it's like an ancient IRS agent. So, so even that theory, uh, it fumbles, right? It falters when you look at the fact that one of the disciples and the one to whom the first gospel is attributed would have, in fact, been scribally literate. And of course, with reference to John, it, it's, it's, it should be easy enough to surmise that if he wasn't literate, which the New Testament says he wasn't, what, might, what recourse might he have if he wanted to compose a gospel? You get an amanuensis. You get a scribe, a secretary, and you dictate it, which is exactly what the church fathers say Peter did with Mark's gospel. That Mark's gospel is essentially uh, Mark's transcription of Peter's oral proclamation while he was bishop in Rome. So yes, Peter's illiterate, but Mark isn't. And so he's able to compose the text. Okay, so that's internal evidence. What about the external evidence? Well, if you look at point four on the handout there, in order to look at this material, you have to turn to the early church fathers. And I have a whole chapter in the case for Jesus walking you through the data from the early church fathers. Can't do that here now, but i just make a few points. Number one, I'll never forget when I first started studying the evidence from the church fathers outside the New Testament. When I was growing up, I didn't know there was early Christian literature apart from the New Testament. I assumed that everything the early Christians wrote went into the Bible. Right? I didn't know about the Apostolic Fathers. I certainly didn't know about the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century writers. And as I began to study them, I went into them with the presupposition that the Fathers would be just as ambiguous and doubtful about the authorship of the Gospels as my professors were. Right? Because I had learned from undergraduate years that everyone knows the Gospels are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. And yet when you go back to the men who lived either at the time of the apostles or shortly thereafter, like Papias or Irenaeus, who only either one or two generations removed, they have absolutely no doubts about who wrote these books. Right? So Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, uh, Papias, who was a disciple of St. John, says very clearly, Matthew the Apostle wrote Matthew, John the Apostle wrote John, and Mark and Luke, the two companions of Paul and Peter, wrote those Gospels in the mid-first century uh, A.D. And it's not just Irenaeus, it's all of the fathers. They are completely unanimous, whether they're living in Asia Minor, or Africa, or Italy, or Gaul. It doesn't matter. They all agree completely on attributing these four books to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's very significant, because external evidence has to be factored in if you're doing history. You don't do history just on the basis of internal evidence, because you can go awry. You need to ask, what did the contemporary? of these people think about who wrote these books, right? The same thing, just think about Pope Benedict XVI, right? Uh, it'd be really good to forge a book in his name because you could make a lot of cash. I think Jesus of Nazareth sold 90,000 copies the first uh, week it came out, uh, the, the second volume. Well, in order to confirm, say 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they actually wrote the book, you could ask people living at the time of Pope Benedict, did he write this book? You can get confirmation, corroboration. That's how you do history. And when you turn to these fathers, again, they are completely unanimous. However, it's not just the fathers. It's also the pagan critics of Christianity. I don't know if any of you ever read Celsus. He was one of the first great anti-Christian writers. And uh, in his book, uh, friendly, uh, very charitably titled Against Celsus, Origen talks about the fact that even Celsus would not deny, quote, that Jesus' own pupils and hearers wrote the Gospels. But what Celsus said was they were liars, they were charlatans, they were deceivers. Right? Now, he could have undermined the Gospels by denying their being based on eyewitness testimony. But it was so widespread, widely known 
that the apostles had written them, that all he could do was try to impugn their motives and impugn the truth of their narratives, right? So even the pagans give us evidence for apostolic authorship, or in this case, authorship by companions of apostles. All right, so with that in mind, let's move from point four to point six there. Obviously, point five has disappeared. Um, I don't usually make mistakes with numbers, but in this case, students know I do this all the time. All right. All right, so let's say, okay, well, let's, let's take your point. Perhaps the Gospels were, uh, in fact, written by apostles and eyewitnesses. That doesn't mean they're actually telling us the truth. One of the things Ehrman is going to say is that the, the ancient people had a different view of truth, and they could believe something was true even if it didn't happen. All right? He says that the genre of the Gospels is more like folklore or fairy tales where you're making a moral point, but you're not necessarily making a historical claim. Well, one of my favorite parts of this book is the chapter on the genre of the Gospels. I, went, I did a lot of work looking at ancient biographies, like Plutarch's Lives of, of the Great Men, or Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars, or Josephus' Life of Himself. Looking at ancient biographies from the 1st century AD and the 2nd century AD to compare them with the Gospels. And as I try to show, following the work of Richard Burridge and others, a great Anglican scholar who won the uh, Ratzinger Prize for his work on the genre of the Gospels, it is really incontrovertible that if you put the Gospels in their first century context, the genre that they fit is not myth, right? It's not folklore or fiction. It is biography. They are a Christian version of ancient Greco-Roman bioi, is what they were called, lives. Lives that were written of famous politicians or famous philosophers, like a uh, uh, Lucian's life of, uh, of Demonax, a, a first century philosopher, a pagan philosopher, very similar to the way the Gospels are constructed. So I take you through the parallels there in the book. I didn't get to put them into the, the presentation tonight uh, for the sake of time. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. But if you read these books, you'll, you'll, you'll immediately see the parallels with the Gospels in terms of form and structure and intent and whatnot. But I just wanted to give you a couple of quotes here from the Gospels themselves to show you that it's really difficult to maintain the claim that the Gospels aren't trying to give us historical biographies of Jesus if you just look at what they have to say about themselves. Let's, let's look at the prologue, the literary prologue, for example, to Luke, right? Uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. One of the things you'll do when you're writing a book is you usually will signal the genre of the book to the person right at the beginning or right at the end, right? Or both, okay? So Luke opens his Gospel with these words. And as you're reading them, ask yourself, is this, is this telephone game? Is this, is this folklore and fiction? Or is it something different? Luke writes, uh, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I'll top tie, and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an accurate, acribos, account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth, or the facts, asphalean is a kind of difficult word to translate, concerning the things of which you have been informed. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Now isn't that interesting? The third gospel which is attributed to somebody who is not himself an eyewitness, begins his text by making sure that you know, as a reader, that what he's about to narrate is not just accurate, right, but is based on the testimony of autoptai. We get the word autopsy from this, right? Those who, what? Who saw for themselves. Now, why is he doing that? This is a standard move that other biographers will make, like uh, Lucian in his Life of Demonax. He'll tell you, I was a student. 
I was there. I heard him teach. And now I'm going to tell you what he did and what he said. So that you can know that this is a generally reliable account of his life and of his death and of his teachings. Uh, you find something similar at the end of the Gospel of John um, where he says, this is the disciple, talking about the beloved disciple, who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony, Marturia, is true. Right? Now, of course, for John, any word will have five, six, seven, maybe eight meanings. Right? This is John. But Marturia, at the basic level, put it in a Jewish context. Think about the commandment not to bear false what? Witness, right? So he's making a public act of testimony to the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said. And in fact, I left the verse out, but he goes on to say, uh, there were many other things that Jesus did, but the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. I didn't have enough space. That's a standard biographical move. Right? Lucian actually does in his Life of Demon. Actually, it's like, I just don't have the space to tell you everything he did, so I'm going to select a few things. Right? Which is important. Biographies are not exhaustive. They're selective by nature. Right? But that doesn't mean they're unhistorical, and it certainly doesn't transform them into myths or into folklore. All right, so the evidence, uh, there's good evidence for the, uh, the Gospels being originally attributed to eyewitnesses and apostles or disciples of apostles, both internal and external. There's good evidence for the literary genre of the Gospels being historical biographies, not just biographies, but biographies that are trying to give you an accurate account of what Jesus didn't say. Um, but the other question that gets raised when it comes to the reliability of the Gospels is, what about, what about chronology? Are they too late to be reliable? Right, because that's one of the claims that Ehrman's going to hammer over and over again. These are late first-century documents from somewhere between 70 to 95 A.D. and um, written by anonymous people who weren't eyewitnesses. So that by the time you get to them, the stories have changed so much that they're really too late to be historically reliable on most points. On some points, Ehrman's going to accept as historical, but the, the historian's going to have to make decisions to separate the wheat from the chaff. Right, so what do we make of the dating question? Well, again, I have a whole chapter on the dating of the Gospels in the book. Too long to go into here in detail, but just a few points. Number one, even if you accept the standard late first century dates, you know, Mark is 70 AD, Matthew's 80 to 85, Luke's 80 to 85, and John's 95 AD, even if you accept that for a second, um, those are all still within the lifetime of the Apostles. They're all still within the living memory of the events. Okay, So to act as if um, uh, it's too late for there to be eyewitnesses around is just not true. And I'll give you a little chronology of the lifetime of the apostles uh, in, in, the, in the book to show you that. So you know, think about it too. The apostles are probably in their 20s. And they're Jesus' disciples. They're like seminarians, right? That's why they don't understand anything, right? It's, it's very clear. And, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Um, no, Jesus is about 30s, a rabbi. The disciples are probably younger than him. So if they're in their 20s and the 30s of the first century AD, right? Then by the time you get to the 60s and the 70s, it's not too late for them to write. Ehrman himself is in his 60s, and he, he writes a lot of books, okay? So uh, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Even more the case for Mark and Luke, who probably would have been younger as second generation, okay? So, so that's not a problem at all. Um, but there are problems with the late first century dating. Although I know in your undergraduate class and mine too, these dates were presented as facts, as if the Gospels were published with little copyright dates, you know, uh, published 90, uh, 70 AD or 85 AD. That's just not the case. These are not facts. These are hypotheses that are inferences drawn from the text themselves because there are no 
There's no verses in the Gospels that tell you when they were written. You have to infer it. Okay, and so the dating. Uh, the, the dates, the late first century dates you usually get are based on a couple of things. First, the assumption that the two-source hypothesis solution to the synoptic problem is, is true and is basically factual and that we can use it as a solid basis to date the Gospels. Um, I can't go into this in all kinds of details, but that's already a problem. Because one of the things I show in the book is, yes, the two-source hypothesis is a viable theory, but it's not without its holes. And there are lots of other theories as well that are competing with it. For example, the Farrer hypothesis, uh, propounded by uh, Mark Goodacre at Duke University, which is the one that really got me to question the two-source. He has a book called The Case Against Q that came out in 2002 that, that, that raises lots of problems with the two-source hypothesis. In fact, E.P. Sanders, who's a giant of New Testament study, said the two-source hypothesis, the Q theory, is the least satisfactory solution solution out of all the solutions to the synoptic problem. Right? And Joseph Fitzmaier, the great Jesuit New Testament scholar, said that the synoptic problem is practically insoluble. Right? Now if that's the case, that's not the place you want to start in order to ascertain and to derive your dates for the Gospels. You don't want to base it on a literary theory which may be completely uh, wrong or may be insoluble in fact. Also too, I try to show in the book, point three, that there actually is evidence in the Gospels that, the, that they were written before the temple was destroyed. Maybe we can talk about this in the Q&A session if you want to uh, we want to talk about it in a little more detail. Uh, I did a long book. My first book was on the Olivet Discourse, and I look at that material in, in detail. And usually what scholars argue is that Jesus' prophecies of the temple destruction couldn't have been written up before the temple destruction uh, because they're too detailed, so they have to be prophecy ex eventu. But the reality is if you look at those prophecies in Mark and Matthew and Luke, there's signs in them that they... That don't seem to jive with them being written after the fact. Like Matthew adding things like pray the destruction uh, or the abomination of desolation not take place in winter or on a Sabbath. He adds that to Mark. Why would he add an injunction for it not to take place in winter on a Sabbath if it had already happened in 70 AD in late summer? Does that make any sense? Or for Luke, adding a warning, don't go into the city when this stuff begins to happen. Is that really a necessary thing for Luke's community if he's writing in the 80s? Why add those details? But they make lots of sense if it's still pre-temple destruction. That's just a little aside there. But for me, the real kicker was uh, the ending of Acts. The ending of the Acts of the Apostles. You've probably read Acts before. Maybe you've not made it to the end, but it gets a little dry in the second half. Um, but if you remember the ending, Acts 28, very detailed account of the journeys of Paul, and it ends in 28 with Paul in Rome under house arrest preaching the gospel. And you get to that ending, and all of a sudden, it just abruptly stops. Right? doesn't go on to narrate uh, Paul's martyrdom, for example, under the Romans, the, the Neronian persecution. All that isn't there. And so uh, Adolf von Harnack, back in the early 20th century, after actually arguing that Acts was 2nd century AD, came around and said, the only really plausible way to explain why Luke doesn't narrate Paul's martyrdom is because Paul's martyrdom hasn't happened yet. Right? It's the same reason the first edition, uh, first edition of George Weigel's Witness to Hope didn't tell you about John Paul II's demise from Parkinson's and his dramatic death in 2005. Why? Well, because Witness to Hope was written in 1999. It hadn't happened yet. Right? And when you're writing history and you get to the present, you stop. <laughs> that's, that's how it works, all right? Okay. So von Harnack argued that Luke was actually written while Paul is still alive, around 62 AD. 
Now, if that's the case, follow me here for a second. If that's the case, and Luke is written after Mark, which almost everyone agrees on, and maybe after Matthew, which a lot of people agree on, then when would that push the other Gospels? If, if Luke's written in 62, or actually before 62, because Acts is second, then what would that place the other Gospels? Sometime in the, at the latest, the early 60s, and earlier, probably in the 50s. Right? So it changes the whole chronology. And the 50s are certainly well within reasonable chronological proximity to the events of Jesus' life, for them to be reliable accounts of what happened in the 30s. Think about interviewing Holocaust survivors in the 60s, right? about what happened during the Second World War. You think their memories would still be fresh? Yeah, I mean, actually, they were being interviewed up until recently. Elie Wiesel was still publishing books in the 90s. Okay, so we've got to put some historical perspective on these chronological things. Sometimes you, you'll hear these dates and sound like, wow, late first century, how could they be reliable? Mm-mm, not really, if you put it in context. And there are questions about whether it's even late first century. It may actually be early to mid first century. Okay, so those are a few points from the book on the origin of the Gospels. With that, uh, not established, let's just pretend it's established for now. That was very brief. Uh, What do these books claim about Jesus of Nazareth? So page two. Does Jesus claim to be God? Or did Jesus claim to be God? Well, in the book, in the case for Jesus, one of the things I tried to do was basically accept the, the assumption that God, John's gospel is late uh, and it can't be brought into the picture. So I argued here for Jesus' divine identity strictly on the basis of the synoptics. And what I, I propose in the book is Jesus does claim to be divine in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he does it in a very Jewish way. All right? He does not go around the streets of Jerusalem and Galilee saying, Hey, everybody, I'm God. I'm the second person of the Trinity, and I'm going to die for your sins. Right? He doesn't do that. He uses the language of the Jewish scriptures to reveal the mystery of his identity in a very deliberate way, using parables and using riddles in a strategic manner that is designed, get this, this is important, to both... Um, sorry, to both reveal his divine identity to his apostles and disciples and to those who have the ears to hear and to conceal it at the same time from those who would oppose him and who might actually arrest him and crucify him. Right? It's, he, uses, he talks about his divine identity in riddles that, in a way that both conceals and reveals. And so in page two here, I've given you a couple of examples of this to try to highlight his divine identity in the synoptics. So let's just look at a few, a few things here. First, Um, Number one, the kingdom of God and the Son of Man. Now, most of us think that when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's emphasizing his humanity, right? So, Son of Man, humanity, Son of God, divinity. And that's partly true, um, but it's not entirely true. Because if you look at the way Jesus uses Son of Man in the Gospels, he's not just emphasizing his identity as a human being. He's alluding to a very specific text from the book of Daniel. It's Daniel chapter 7, right? Um, So, Jesus' two favorite things to talk about over and over again in the synoptics, kingdom of God, God, Son of Man, Kingdom of God, Son of Man, Kingdom of God, Son of Man. Well, where do you get those from? You go back to the Old Testament and you look around for the Kingdom of God. It's not like they're all talking about it. Like, it's not like Isaiah and Jeremiah and everyone's using this expression, Kingdom of God. But the imagery of the Kingdom and the Son of Man is particularly prominent in Daniel. So, just a quick review here. This is from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel's famous vision of one like a Son of Man. And he says this, I, Daniel, saw my vision by night. Four great beasts uh, came out, out of the sea. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Alright, so that's Daniel 7. Alright, so what's this imagery all about? I've given you a chart here to just break down the, the larger context of the chapter. And in the chapter, if you look at the left-hand side here, Daniel has a dream about the famous four beasts. I'm sure you've seen this before. Where The, the first beast is a lion. All right? It represents the Babylonian kingdom as well as the Babylonian uh, king uh, that uh, was prominent in the 6th century BC. Uh, the second uh, beast is a bear right? that he identifies, the angel will identify as a second king. That is tied to the Medo-Persian Empire, the 5th century BC. The third beast is a leopard, right, uh, that the angel identifies as a third king who is tied to the Greek Empire. I think Alexander the Great here. And then finally, the fourth beast, uh, the fourth king or fourth kingdom, was interpreted as being the Roman Empire. And this is standard in books like 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. 1st century Jewish writings read this Danielic schema and saw it in terms of these four kingdoms leading up to the fourth beast being the Roman Empire. And it's at that time, the time of the the fourth beast, Jesus, uh, that Daniel sees this one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and being exalted to and receiving a heavenly kingdom and sitting on this heavenly throne, right? And this fifth king is the king of the kingdom of God that Daniel will talk about in other places 2 and 9 and whatnot. Now, what's interesting about the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 is, on the one hand, obviously, he's a son of man, right? So he's human. But it also says that he's like a son of man. And he's doing things that are rather strange for a son of man, like coming on the clouds of heaven. If you look in the Old Testament, this image of coming on the clouds is always something that Yahweh does. Yahweh comes in the clouds. He comes in judgment on the clouds. So there's this mysterious mixture of human attributes and also divine attributes. And he's also being exalted to a heavenly throne. He's being presented to the Son of Man to rule, I'm sorry, to the Ancient of Days to rule over this heavenly kingdom. So is this figure an angel? Is he human? Is he divine? There was a recent book put out by uh, Daniel Boyarin, he's a, he's a Jewish rabbi, contemporary Jewish rabbi, who actually makes the case that in Daniel 7, what we're seeing is a divine figure. Right? Uh, this is Boyarin. What this text, Daniel 7, projects is a second divine figure, a God who looks like a human being who is now called Son of Man. Right? Uh, another Jewish scholar, Alan Siegel, wrote a book called The Two Powers in Heaven, who talked about the rabbinic debate about how to wrestle with this text, of which uh, having these apparent two powers, like not just Yahweh, but this other, these other divine figures in the heavens. All right. So I don't think it's inconsequential that Jesus picks this text to be his favorite way of referring to himself. But notice he always does it in the third person, right? The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It's like Bob Dole when he ran for president. I don't know if anybody remembers this. He would say, Bob Dole's going to do this, and Bob Dole's going to do that. Remember this? It was very odd. Why are you talking about yourself in the third person? Well, hopefully it wasn't because he thought he was divine, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a, it, it, a unique way of self-reference. Well, Jesus uses this self-reference um, throughout the Gospels, and we can talk about some episodes there, like the healing of the paralytic, where they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, oh no, you got me wrong. No. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, take up your pallet and walk. He doesn't clarify or try to evade the charge that he's doing something only God can do. He accepts it and then he identifies himself with the Danielic figure in the context. 
Okay, so that's one example. Uh, what about the miracles of Jesus? This is one of my real problems with Ehrman's approach, is that he constantly ignores the miracles in the synoptics. Because the miracles are precisely where Jesus tends to reveal his di- divine identity in the clearest possible way. And my favorite one is the walking on the sea. Right? So in Mark chapter 6, this is Mark here, right? The earliest gospel, according to most gospels, uh, according to most scholars. So uh, let's look at it here. Mark 6 says, About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately and he, spoke to them, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, ego a me. In the Greek. Now, RSV will say, it is I. But that's not what it says. It's, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Now, two elements of this text uh, are interesting. First, the note that he says he meant to pass them by. Where is he going? (laughs) To the grocery? I mean, is he he like a midnight craving? He's going to get something? What what does that mean? What is he intended to uh, to pass by them? And then secondly, why does he say, take heart, I am? What's, the, what's, this, what's this mean in context? Well, a number of scholars, Adele Yarbrough-Collins, uh, John Meyer, my professor from Notre Dame, and others had pointed out that the ego in me in this context is not just a self-identification. It's an echo of theophanies from the Old Testament. That whenever Yahweh would appear, especially in momentous occasions like on Mount Sinai with Moses, he appears and he reveals his divine name. right? And his divine name is... Ego e me, right? I am. I am who I am. So, uh, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, here we say, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What's his name? What shall I say to them? Moses said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am, the LXX, the Septuagint, has ego e me, has sent me to you. So Jesus here reveals himself. Right in the context of um, this miraculous act of walking on the sea, and he uses the divine name, I am. Now, sometimes people will object to that and say, well, he's just identifying himself. And I'm not denying that he's identifying himself, but we have to put the words in context. He's not just saying, I am. He's saying it while walking on the water, right? Okay. <laughs> this is extraordinary, right? Uh, this is not your usual, you know, act. Uh, you know, people like to raise the question, uh, you know, did Jesus know he was divine? Well, in the Gospel of John, his account of the walking on the sea, it says they were four miles from the shore. Right, four miles from the shore, and some of us here commute on the causeway. When you get to the four-mile marker, right, and you look back, look how far away the bank is, the the, the shore is in, in, in uh, Lake Pontchartrain. Four miles is a long way, right? So if he didn't know he was divine by mile one, <laughs> I bet he figured it out by mile four. I'm not like the other kids, you know. Something different. Something different about me. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. They're not supposed to be jokes at a symposium, but oh well. No, but, but seriously, just just try to put. Oh, time. Mm. How much time do I have? Five minutes. I'm sorry. I just had an aneurysm. Okay. All right. All right. 
okay. Well, then we'll move ahead. Uh, finally, the trial of Jesus. Let's skip down to the trial. This is the key moment. Because remember, over throughout the gospel, Jesus reveals and conceals his identity. We can talk about the messianic secret later. But Mark's gospel climaxes with the divine claim. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, right? It, uh, Caiaphas at the trial, before he's crucified, says as follows. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, which is a, 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 a euphemism for God, a circumlocution for God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his what? His blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Okay. Now here's the point. It was not blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah in the first century AD. The Messiah is just the anointed king of Israel, the Christos. David was a Messiah. Saul's called a Mashiach in the Old Testament. That's not a blasphemous claim. How else are you going to know who the Messiah is? Right? But it is blasphemous to claim to sit on God's throne. It is blasphemous to identify yourself with this heavenly being who's coming on the clouds of heaven. Right? So Jesus here alludes to Psalm 7, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, brings them together and makes this divine claim. Adele Yarbrough Collins says, to sit on the throne of God is a claim of, uh, I'm sorry, this is Joel Marcus, of near equality with God. Right? And so the high priest recognizes it as blasphemous. Now, if Jesus did not claim to be divine in this scene, then why is he charged with blasphemy in the context of a question about his identity? Right? This really only makes sense if he's claiming to be something more than just the Messiah. All right. Now I'll turn to page three. Um... Wow, time is of the essence here. How many? We got five minutes? Five minutes. Okay. <laughs> the resurrection. It happened. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, real quick. Um, why believe in the resurrection? Uh, I have a whole section of the book where I try to walk through some of the biblical evidence for the resurrection, like the empty tomb, the appearances of the risen Jesus. But my favorite thing uh, to highlight was, uh, number three, the fulfillment of Scripture. If you looked at the early church, and you look at how they proclaimed the resurrection. When they went around proclaiming Jesus was raised from the dead, they didn't say, you should believe us. We, uh, we are so fervent. We are so uh, committed to this cause that we'll die for it. That's what a lot of Christians will say today. Like We should believe the disciples' testimony to the resurrection because they were so committed to it. That wasn't their argument. Their argument was, you should believe it because it was, the, it was in accordance with the scriptures. He, was fulfilled, uh, he fulfilled the scripture. He was raised on the third day. But the problem with that is that if you go back to the Old Testament and you look for a prophecy of uh, the Messiah being raised on the third day, guess what? There isn't one. There isn't a prophecy that says Hosea 6 has something about being raised on the third day, but it seems to be a collective resurrection rather than uh, an individual resurrection. And so the only Old Testament text that Jesus ever points to is actually the, the, the book of Jonah. Right? And I know you all know this story here, but let's look at it again in closing. Um, I love this. They, so they say, you know, give us a sign to prove that you're the Messiah. Or, or give us a sign to show us who you are. 
And Jesus says very kindly, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, remember that, that's the pagan, the Assyrian Empire, will arise at the judgment with this generation and, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, why does Jesus make this connection with the book of Jonah? Like, I mean, I get it. Three days, three nights. I see the parallel. But it seems a little forced, right? I mean, what, where does the parallelism really exist? And also, too, um, is the story of Jonah really believable? And how do you stay alive in the belly of a whale for three days? What, I mean, is this Pinocchio here? What are we talking about? Why would Jesus, like, you should really believe in the resurrection because of that crazy story that no one believes about Jonah. Like, you see, you see how... It seems to undermine it. Well, if you go back to Jonah, I think there's a clue in Jonah that may help us because if you read Jonah's prayer, the case can be made that Jonah is not alive. That Jonah dies. Look at, the, look at Jonah's prayer again. Jonah chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of what? Sheol, right? That's the realm of the dead, right? I cried, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from what? Hit. Oh Lord my God, when my soul, my nephesh, fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Right? Seems like in a sense almost Jonah's dying breath is what? A prayer to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And then the word came, the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Kum, right. arise, go to Nineveh, to the great city, and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Right. And this time he does it, right? This time he does it. And what happens? You remember the story, right? The entire city repents, from the king all the way down to the lowest person, right? So the sign of Jonah isn't just the, the story of his death and resurrection. And there are ancient Near Eastern stories of three-day journeys into the realm of the underworld. There are parallels here, right? But it's not just that. It's also the miracle of the conversion of the Ninevites. Remember, the Ninevites were completely wicked from the Jewish perspective. Too. They didn't know their right hand from their left. And yet, what happens when Jonah preaches? They all convert. So the miracle there is also the conversion of these pagans. So, what then do we make of Jesus? How, what is the sign of Jonah for Jesus? It's that he himself will die. He will descend into Sheol for three days. And he will rise. And when he rises, he, like Jonah, will bring the word to the pagans. And the miracle will be not just his resurrection, but the conversion of the nations. That the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all they talk about. One day, the nations will pilgrimage to the mountain of Zion and they will worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that's exactly what begins to happen. 
after the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And the early Christians knew this. I'll end with this quote, Dr. Neal. <laughs> Final quote. This is from Eusebius. This is how the early Christians would argue the case for Jesus. They would point to the conversion of the pagans. And Eusebius put it this way. This is in the 4th century. Listen, it's so beautiful. He says, Behold how today, yes, in our own times, our eyes see not only Egyptians, but every race of men who used to be idolaters, released from the errors of polytheism and the demons, and calling out to the God of the prophets. Yes, in our own time, the knowledge of the omnipotent God shines forth and sets a seal of certainty on the forecast of the prophets. You see this actually going on. You no longer expect to hear of it. And if you ask the moment when the change began, for all your inquiry, you will receive no other answer but the moment of the appearance of the Savior. And who would not be struck by the extraordinary change? That men who for ages have paid divine honor to wood and stone and demons, wild beasts that feed on human flesh, poisonous reptiles, animals of every kind, repulsive monsters, fire and earth, and the lifeless elements of the universe, should after our Savior's coming pray to the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the actual Lord of the prophets, and the God of Abraham and his forefathers. How do you explain that fact, in other words? And Eusebius says... It, it, elsewhere he'll say this is the confirmation of the sign of Jonah. Right? And look around. The nations are still converting to worship the God of this Jew from Nazareth. How do you explain that fact? Right? Is Christianity uh, just one religion among others? Or is it divinely revealed? Is it the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures? And I think we can see here um, evidence for the fact that Jesus didn't just claim to be divine, but that his divine claim that he made during his lifetime was confirmed in his resurrection on Thursday. All right. Thank you very much. Go. Okay, thanks. Sorry if I went a little... I tried to go fast. While I have the floor... Um, and you're all here, I just want to give a very sincere and heartfelt thank you to all of you for uh, making me feel so welcome this year. Uh, I was telling Father Wayner the other day that not a day goes by when I don't thank the Lord Jesus for bringing me back to Notre Dame Seminary. The only thing I don't understand, Dr. Baglow, is why you didn't encourage me to do this years ago. <laughs> I was stubborn. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's been a, a special joy this year to uh, get to know, to get to be friends with Dr. Petrie. Um, I've really benefited from and enjoyed our conversations and look forward to many more. Uh, and when Dr. Petrie and I get together and have a conversation, we, we talk about a vast array of topics, pretty much everything under the sun. We talk about the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible, just, just you name it. Dr. Petrie's The Case for Jesus is a well-researched, tightly argued, and lucidly written book. It makes serious biblical scholarship accessible to a wide readership as it deals with a pair of topics of the greatest importance, the reliability of the Gospels and the uh, divinity of Jesus Christ.
Above all, the case for Jesus meets a crying pastoral need. In recent decades, many impressionable Christians have been scandalized by a rash of books and other media that employ specious historical arguments to undermine orthodox belief in Jesus Christ. While Dr. Petrie writes out of deep conviction, born of a long personal quest, he avoids a polemical tone. When Bart Ehrman conveniently overlooks evidence that doesn't fit his reconstruction of early Christianity, Dr. Petrie points this out politely. And when Ehrman occasionally makes a good point, Dr. Petrie graciously gives him credit for doing so. The real joy that I found in reading the case for Jesus was to watch Dr. Petrie, great, uh, watch Dr. Petrie charitably dismantle Ehrman's argument piece by piece, while at the same time constructing his own counter-argument. The agile erudition with which he does this is truly impressive. Now, I could go on singing the praises of the case for Jesus, but I gather that my role as respondent calls for something more than that. (laughs) I know that our students would not wish to see their professors disagree with each other. But I suspect that our colleagues on the faculty will go home disappointed if we don't throw them some red meat. (laughs) The case for Jesus comprises 13 chapters. With regard to 11 of these chapters, I find myself in substantial agreement with Dr. Petrie. That leaves two chapters, chapters 8 and 10, where significant differences emerge hopefully interesting ones as well. Most of these pertain to the interpretation of certain Old Testament passages and their use in the Gospels. So as not to get too far into the weeds, I'll focus my comments mainly on the title Son of Man, which factors prominently in both chapters 8 and 10 of the case for Jesus. Chapter 8 takes up the book of Daniel, not the easiest book of the Bible to interpret, While I fervently embrace Dr. Petrie's basic affirmation, namely that the book of Daniel prophesies the coming of the kingdom of God in the person and event of Jesus Christ, I disagree on virtually all the particulars of his interpretation. For example, when it comes to Daniel's schema of the five kingdoms, Dr. Petrie adopts the view that would identify the fourth kingdom as the Roman Empire while I accept the view that identifies the fourth kingdom as the Hellenistic Empire. This point may strike the casual observer as the sort of esoteric detail that could only be of interest to biblical scholars. I I, I saw the glazed look come over your eyes as I mentioned it. In fact, however, this seemingly fine point of exegesis has important ramifications. How we identify the fourth, gospel, uh, the fourth kingdom reflects or determines what we think about the sacred author's historical context and his theological point of view. Undergirding all the particulars of exegesis on which Dr. Petrie and I might disagree with the case of the book of Daniel, 
uh, are two rather different ways of looking at this book and its prophetic character. I gather from what uh, Dr. Petrie has written in that chapter 8 that he takes the words and ideas and symbols of the book of Daniel, or at least some of them, to refer more or less directly to the advent of Jesus Christ. Like many scholars, I view the book of Daniel as directly concerned with the Maccabean crisis of the mid-2nd century B.C., This is the lens through which it views the whole tenor and trajectory of God's historical plan of redemption. The author of Daniel does in fact foresee the coming of the kingdom of God, and he foresees that the kingdom will come through the persecution, suffering, and subsequent vindication of God's chosen instrument. This instrument is symbolized by one like a son of man, in the visionary dream of Daniel 7. Biblical scholars have devoted many thousands of pages to the exegesis of that little Aramaic phrase, kevar enash, one like a son of man. That's, That's no exaggeration, many thousands of pages. According to Dr. Petrie, this phrase refers directly to a king, the king who will rule over the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God. In other words, the one like a son of man is the Messiah. It denotes the Messiah directly. Further, Dr. Petrie favors the view of those scholars who suggest that the son of man in Daniel is a divine being, as he just showed you with uh, Daniel Boyeran being such a scholar. What Dr. Petrie neglects to mention in chapter 8 is that the inspired human author of Daniel 7 tells us precisely and emphatically what the one like a son of man represents. He symbolizes a group called the Kadishe Elyonin, the saints of the Most High or holy ones of the Most High. Daniel 7 consists of two parts. Daniel's visionary dream and the explanation of that dream given by an angel. Daniel's vision ends with dominion and glory and a kingdom being given to one like a son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The angel tells Daniel that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Later he adds, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. In between these two statements, we find four more references to the saints of the Most High. All of this in response to Daniel's asking for an explanation of the dream. If the communicative intention of the inspired human author is to play a part in how we understand the prophetic vision of Daniel 7, we must begin with this exegetical fact. The one like a son of man represents the saints of the Most High. In the course of the angel's explanation, we also learn 
that these saints will be subject to religious persecution and suffer at the hands of the little horn before being vindicated and exalted by God. The people of the saints of the Most High is clearly, I think, the faithful remnant of Israel. And most scholars, rightly in my opinion, take the little horn to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king who was responsible for the torture and execution of thousands of Jewish martyrs during the Maccabean crisis of the 160s BC. This relatively straightforward interpretation of Daniel 7 is also the key to understanding the otherwise obscure visions that we find in chapters 8 through 12 of Daniel. One more remark about Daniel 7. I'm not at all convinced that this text presents the Son of Man as a divine being, notwithstanding his coming on the clouds. Indeed, this idea may lead us down a false path. The Son of Man represents the people of the saints of the Most High viewed corporately. People there is singular, and it takes singular verbs. Who, a people who, after suffering, are brought into the presence of God and given dominion over all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. The point is not at least not directly or especially, that he is a divine being, but that he is to be given a share in God's glory and dominion. Now, the vision could ultimately point to one who is, in fact, a divine person, but only if that divine person were to assume a mortal humanity in which he could suffer and die and subsequently be glorified in God's presence. Even in that case, the point of the vision and of the phrase, Kivaranash, one like a son of man, would be to indicate his humanity and the glorification of his humanity. So what I'm suggesting is that the book of Daniel does speak prophetically of Christ, but it does so by way of the witness it bears to the Maccabean martyrs the holy men and women who gave their lives in fidelity to the law of Moses and the God of Israel and in the hope of the resurrection of the dead, which was viewed as a glorification of sorts. So these things, these realities of Israel's historical existence under the, under the Old Covenant themselves signify and prophesy the greater things of the New Covenant. So I'm viewing the the prophecy as less direct. the, The words of the text point to, refer to, the saints of the Most High. But these these saints of the Most High, these martyrs, faithful Israelites, themselves are signifying greater realities, a greater reality, Jesus Christ. As the author of the book of Daniel pondered the suffering and witness of these martyrs, the Holy Spirit enabled him to perceive the true identity of Israel and the mystery of Israel's vocation. 
Only through faithful suffering would Israel inherit the glory of God's kingdom. It's basically what Deuteronomy also understood. Moreover, the prophetic author of Daniel saw this in a way that transcended and pointed beyond the immediate historical context of the Maccabean period. So when I say he's directly concerned with the Maccabean period, I'm not saying that his vision is simply bound to it in a kind of historicist way. As he looks at the realities before him, he sees something that transcends those realities. The words of the book of Daniel do not directly or by themselves refer to Jesus Christ unless we force them to do so. But these words, in conjunction with the Old Testament realities to which they refer, do bear a prophetic witness to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. In his humanity, he is the fullness of Israel, and he lives out Israel's identity and vocation in a transcendent and definitive manner. In his humanity, he is the faithful witness who must suffer. In his humanity, he is glorified at the Father's right hand and given dominion over all flesh. And in his humanity, he is the Son of Man who will come again on the clouds of heaven. Now, in chapter 10 of the case for Jesus, Dr. Petrie takes up our Lord's own use of the title, Son of Man in the Gospels. And as we're switching here from the book of Daniel itself and the Son of Man there to how this title is used by our Lord in the Gospels. Dr. Petrie writes, quote, Many modern-day readers may think that when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is emphasizing his humanity. But in a first-century Jewish context, the opposite may have been true. End quote. I respectfully disagree. The idea that the title Son of Man emphasizes Christ's humanity goes back to Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus of Lyon. It's very early, Ignatius being one of the very earliest fathers. And it represents their profound understanding of the Gospels and the Gospels' Christology. Whereas the idea that the title Son of Man identifies Jesus as a divine being is promoted mostly by modern scholars, and in my opinion is misleading at best. But the proof is in the pudding. When we turn to the Gospels themselves, what do we find? We find that the title Son of Man is used especially in contexts that refer to actions of Christ that are proper to his humanity. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The title Son of Man may even suggest that Jesus sums up and represents man. Something like the idea of the new Adam. Listen to the logic, the the kind of parallelism and the logic of this statement from St. Mark's Gospel. 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Even when it is a question of an act that is proper to God, such as the forgiveness of sins or final judgment, the title Son of Man draws our attention to the essential mediating role of Christ's humanity. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and through him, this authority to forgive sins has been given to other men, as St. Matthew's narrative indicates. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Why from now on? In his divinity, he is eternally at the Father's right hand, and he never leaves the Father's right hand. But through the resurrection and ascension, he is seated in divine glory in his humanity and always lives to make intercession for us. Likewise, the many passages that speak of the coming of the Son of Man refer to his return in his glorified humanity. And I think that's where the accent lies. Nowhere, this may surprise you, nowhere is the title Son of Man more closely associated with Christ's humanity than in the Gospel of John. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you can't receive divine life without the mediation of the humanity of the Son of God. In all three Joannine Passion predictions, it is the Son of Man who must be lifted up on the cross and in glory. In his divinity, the Son of God is always glorified, but the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in Him God is glorified. Finally, consider our Lord's words to Nathanael. You will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's the first time the title Son of Man occurs in John's Gospel. It's the last verse of chapter 1. This is a patent allusion to Genesis 28, Jacob's dream. And like the sulam, or stairway, not a ladder, a stairway in Jacob's dream, the Son of God links heaven and earth. But he does so only by becoming Son of Man in the Incarnation. He's not our mediator without the Incarnation. He, becomes, uh, he, he, he uh, links heaven and earth by becoming Son of Man in the Incarnation and by being glorified in His humanity through the Paschal Mystery. As St. Paul puts it, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Thank you.
listening to the Notre Dame Seminary Podcast. Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic seminary and graduate school of theology located in New Orleans, Louisiana. For more information, log on to www.nds.edu.